Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have, heard it that, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're looking at the uh, subject of revenge, and revenge is everywhere, stories of revenge. If you're on social media, uh, like I am, you know, these incredible stories of people who took revenge of somebody pop up all the time on our news feeds. If uh, you, like me, are an addict of the BBC news page, I read it cover to cover every night, um, then you will hear stories of revenge. A bit like the story of, I always forget his name, uh, Richard Osborne Brooks. It's been all over the news in the last few weeks. Uh, the guy on the top there with his Guinness in his hand, who a 78-year-old guy who's woken in the night uh, by a burglar uh, underneath Henry Vincent, who um, he, they struggled in the kitchen, and Henry Vincent was stabbed uh, by Richard Osborne Brooks and unfortunately died um, He was arrested uh, for that, but actually they've decided the police have not to press charges on him. And then what's unraveled since is really interesting, uh, because the burglar who was murdered, his friends and family, in their grief, are feeling revengeful towards Richard Osborne Brooks, to the point where uh, Richard Osborne Brooks hasn't yet been able to go back to his house. Uh, He's under police protection uh, because the friends and family of the guy who died, the burglar who died, are wanting retaliation for his death. You might have come across that story. But what about you personally? What about you and I personally? Is revenge something that we struggle with? I expect that many of us wouldn't like to think of ourselves as people who are out for revenge. It just doesn't sound nice, does it? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like the sort of word, the sort of thing that's associated with bad people, revenge. Uh, Carl Erickson is somebody who I think of when I think of revenge. Age 73, Carl Erickson picked up his gun And he went round to Norman Johnson's house. Norman Johnson opened the door and Carl Erickson proceeded to shoot him in the face twice and kill him. Why on earth did Carl Erickson do that? He did it because over 50 years before, 
Norman Johnson was Carl Erickson's coach when he was um, about 17 at school. And Carl Erickson played a, a sort of bit of a prank in uh, the locker room. On, uh, Norman Johnson played a bit of a prank on Carl Erickson over 50 years before. And since that day, Carl Erickson had harbored resentment uh, towards Norman Johnson. And it had built and built and built until the day where it reached explosion point. 50 years later, the whole of Carl Erickson's adult life had been spent holding this desire for revenge, this grudge that had built up to the point where one day he picked up his gun, walked round to Norman Johnson's uh, house, stood at the door, he'd not seen him in 50 years, and said, are you Norman Johnson? The man said yes, and he shot him twice. It's a pretty extreme story, isn't it? But it is, that desire for revenge is perhaps more common and perhaps more subtle in our lives than we might think. I don't think of myself as being revengeful at all. But then I started to think a bit deeper about what was underneath revenge. Someone hurts us in some way. What is our natural reaction? What is your natural reaction when somebody hurts you? You want to hurt them back. You want them to be sorry for what they've done to you. Your colleague perhaps takes the glory for the work that you have done in a project or in something you've been doing together, and you just can't let the injustice of that go. And so you start just dropping, cutting remarks about that person to some of your colleagues. Start undermining them a little bit. You don't want people to think well of that colleague who took the glory for your hard work. You're let down by a friend. And so you decide to get them back by not helping them the next time they ask for some help from you. <coughs> your friend nicks a chocolate bar from your lunchbox. And so you feel completely justified when your pen runs out to go to their desk and steal their favorite pen. That's fair after all, isn't it? Or that person in your family who's really hurt you, you give them the silent treatment. Or every time they speak, you cut them down by just being really sarcastic back to them. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with it, should they? They've hurt you. All subtle, all feeding resentment, all actually revenge. My uh, family on my dad's side are oh, just a funny bunch. You know, I don't know whether you've got people that are funny in your family. The whole of my dad's side of the family are a funny bunch. Um, and there were feuds in that family going back generations. Um, and I remember once walking down the road, we, we lived in the place where my family and my dad's family had lived for like ever, ever and a day. And I remember walking down the road with my granddad one day and, um, and we, he just pointed at a house and he went, oh, cousin so-and-so lives there. 
And I was a teenager at the time, and I was like, oh, I've never heard of cousin whatever she was called. And he went, no, that's because we don't talk to her. And I said, why is that? And he said, and he regaled this story. And he said, but actually, I don't really know whether it's true. It's just that we don't really talk to her anymore. <laughs> and, and there were people like that all over the place in my dad's side of the family. Feuds, revenge, retaliation, resentment. And nobody really knew what it was all about. I wonder if any of this sounds familiar. Maybe revenge is more common in our lives than we think. And I was thinking about what revenge would look like if it was a physical thing. If you had to hold it now, what would revenge look like? Have a think for a moment. What do you think revenge would look like? I was thinking uh, that actually I think revenge would look like a huge, heavy rock, a massive rock. Uh, it would weigh you down. It was that sort of, uh, of rock. It would weigh you down, but it is also wear you down because you carry it around with you all the time. When you're feeling revengeful to somebody else, it's not something you put down all the time, but it's something you carry all the time and it weighs you down and it wears you down and it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier as time goes on. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. That's natural justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a personal mantra for many people, isn't it, that? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Maybe some of our most prominent world leaders have that as their mantra as well. Maybe they base their politics on it. You hit me, I'll hit you harder. You mess with my people, you mess with you and my, my, mine, my people, and I will show you my power in its full force. You will not get away with it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the outcome of revenge is never good. Think of a time where the outcome of revenge is good. I could not think of any. Someone punches you in the eye. You get a black eye, don't you? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You punch them back, they get a black eye. What do you have? Two black eyes. Two people hurt. It's simple, isn't it? It's a simple equation. One add one equals two. Carl Erickson might have uh, uh, felt a moment of satisfaction, satisfaction as he stood on that doorstep having killed that man after 50 years. But all that happened were that two families were destroyed at the end of the day. And yet Jesus speaks right into this internal struggle that all of us who are hurt and all of us that struggle with this feel and think, and, and he says there is another way. There is another way. There is a way that doesn't follow the path of retaliation and revenge, of you will pay for what you have done. And it's a way of love, and it's a way of kindness, and it's a way of generosity, and it's the way of the cross, and it's the only way that somebody gets the victory. And so Jesus begins this part of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Judy read to us, um, by sketching out four little pictures, if you like, uh, to help people understand what he's going to say to them about revenge. 
So firstly, we find Jesus talking about one of the Old Testament's most famous sayings, that one I've been uh, quoting just now. And he takes them back to the true meaning of this, uh, this saying. He says this in verse 38. You have heard it say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, the eye for an eye thing, I think this is one of those things that God just sits there all the time and just thinks, oh my goodness, for the last numerous millennia, they just have not got it, have they? What is wrong with them? Why cannot they get it? Why can they not see what the true meaning is? Because for years, that statement, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, has been used to justify revenge and retaliation. You speak offensively to my sister, and I have every right to come around to your house and beat you up, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You take my property, my stuff, and I am going to rinse you for everything that you've got, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you have uh, brothers and sisters, like I do, uh, I expect you've all had those moments uh, where you whacked one of your siblings, okay? And uh, they go crying to mom or dad and complain uh, that your, my brother or sister um, punched you, punched them, and your parent comes over to you and says, why on earth did you do that? Why did you punch your brother or sister? And you come out with these inevitable words. They started it. <laughs> she hit me first. But all that that hitting does is keep the anger in circulation. You whack me, I'll whack you. They'll whack you back, and they'll whack you another time. You see, this instruction, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was never meant to be given as permission to take revenge. It was actually given as a preventative measure to stop revenge getting out of control to stop it from escalating. So for example, uh, your neighbor has stolen your sheep, okay? Uh, the instruction, an eye for an eye, was to prevent you from going round to their house and going, you've nicked my sheep, I'm gonna nick the whole of your livestock, okay? It literally means, uh, you steal my sheep, I'm gonna come around and take one of your sheep as well. That's it, the end, the matter is closed, it doesn't escalate an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But over time, this law uh, had, had been stripped of its intended meaning, and it was beginning uh, to be used to legislate violence and retaliation. And so Jesus challenges uh, those who are listening, and us today, as he says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, I tell you now, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Why does Jesus talk about the right cheek? I mean, it's just as painful being slapped on the left cheek, isn't it? What is the big deal about the right cheek? Josh, come up here. Thanks. <laughs> come on. I won't slap you, I promise you. I've got to try and do it. Which is your right cheek? I'm rubbish at my right. I'm not. Right, so this is Josh's right cheek. 
uh, isn't it, Josh? So to, to, to slap Josh on the right cheek, this, I'm right-handed, it's really hard, so I can't go around and go like that. Oh. <laughs> that was great, well done. I have to slap him, I'd be like, like this, I'd slap him on with the back of my hand, like that. If I wanted to slap him left cheek, I'd go like that. But can you see, you would slap somebody on their right cheek with the back of your hand. Thank you, great demonstration, give them a round of applause. Brilliant. And that was the thing. It wasn't the slapping that Jesus is making a big issue with. It's the, the way that you would slap somebody with the back of your hand. Because in the Middle East at that time, and in fact in some of Middle Eastern culture today, hitting somebody with the back of your hand was the biggest insult you could give them. It was highly insulting to hit somebody with the back of the, the hand. It was an incredible insult. And so when Jesus says... If you hit somebody on the right cheek, he's basically saying, if you hit somebody with the back of your hand, turn to them the other also. He's saying, if someone starts to beat you up, um, he's not, sorry, he's not saying, if somebody starts to beat you up, just don't defend yourself, roll over and let them give you a good beating. He's not saying that, but rather he's saying, if somebody hits you, if somebody insults you, if somebody hurts you, don't lower yourself to their level. Don't lower yourself to their level by retaliating. But instead, let go. Let that insult go. Walk away. Forgive them. Don't lower yourself to what they're doing. Translate that a moment into your life. If someone's unkind to you, people are unkind, aren't they? People say cutting things all the time. You might have something you're carrying tonight that somebody said to you. If somebody's unkind to you, if they insult you, if they say something cutting or upsetting to you, you might just feel like being unkind back by telling them what you really think about them. But Jesus' way, this way, is about instead being generous to them and actually being kind to them back, surprising them as you turn the other cheek. It's not about being walked all over. It's actually about being radical. It's the most godly thing you can do in that moment. So that's the first picture. Then the second picture that Jesus uses is that of a lawsuit. He says this, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Uh, now, remember, in Jesus' time, they didn't have John Lewis down the road or Primark or whatever uh, shop you fancy. Uh, people didn't have very many possessions at all. And in fact, they often only had one shirt or tunic and one coat or cloak. And in fact, your cloak uh, was often your most treasured possession. It was probably the thing that you owned that cost the most amount of money, that was worth the most amount of money. And it wasn't just your sort of outer clothing to keep you warm, it was that, but it was also your blanket at night. It was such an important thing, an important garment. And so Jesus is saying here, hold your possessions lightly. If someone is low enough to try and sew the shirt off your back, bearing in mind you didn't wear pants in those days, okay? If somebody is low enough to try and sew the shirt off your back, shock them by giving them 
your cloak, your most treasured possession. Jesus is saying, that's what it looks like to be my person. Meet evil with good. I don't know whether you saw um, this, again, this is because I read the BBC News website on a regular basis, uh, the story of the guy who, um, whose packed lunch kept getting stolen uh, from his fridge at work, uh, even though it was labelled like all those packed lunches there. And uh, the story goes that his employers allowed him to watch eventually, because it had gone on for some time and he was really riled by this, his employers allowed him to watch the CCTV to see who it was who was stealing his packed lunch day after day after day. And he found out it was a, a lady uh, that he worked with. But actually, when it came to it, and they said, you could press charges against, against this woman for stealing your packed lunch on a regular basis. Take note, people I work with. Um, <laughs> they, we don't. We just share everything. <laughs> uh, when it actually came down to it, he realized that actually that would make the situation far, far worse by suing his colleague for pat lunches she'd nicked. So he just decided at the end of the day to let it go. He decided not to retaliate, but to forgive and be reconciled with this woman. And then we get to the third picture. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, in uh, Roman-occupied Israel, uh, a soldier had the right at any time to demand a citizen to carry their bag, their equipment, whatever they were carrying, for one mile. And you had to do it. You had to do it. Whatever part of the day it was at, if you were in the middle of plowing your field, whatever you were doing, you had to stop and carry that Roman soldier's belongings or equipment for that one mile. And it was an irritant, and everybody hated it. And so when Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, this is what he's referring to. If you have to do forced labor for a soldier, don't resent it but shock them. Be generous. Be radical. Surprise that soldier by giving them more than they demanded from you. And then on a similar line, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Those people who are taking advantage of you, continue to be generous, even when their intention is wrong. Be generous towards people. Jesus, can you see, is challenging this culture that was prevalent in the society then and is in our society today as well. Do to others as they would do to you. Do to others as they would do to you. And Jesus is challenging that and saying, no, don't. Be better. Be different. Live as children of the Father. You see, if we're children of the Father, if we're God's people that we've been singing about this, this evening, the standard of God is to love like God. The standard of God is to love like God. Because the way that we love, the way that people love each other is always flawed. You might have somebody that loves you and you think their love for me is perfect. 
Or you might love somebody and you think my love for them is perfect, but it's not. Sorry. Because <laughs> human love is always flawed because we are flawed people. There's always something selfish in it. You see, in these days as well, people have taken um, the command, love your neighbor, even that command, love your neighbor, and, and twisted it a little bit and added a little bit on. Well, if you, we're meant to love our, our neighbor, that just means love people like us. And don't we all do that? We just love people like us. And then they added a little bit on, well, that's all right, if we're to love our neighbor, we're allowed to hate our enemies as well. And don't we all do that a little bit as well? Love those like us, hate those who are not. And Jesus challenges all this and says this in verses 42 to 45, 43 to 45. You have heard it say, said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is what being children of the Heavenly Father looks like. It looks like loving your enemies. It looks like praying for the people that persecute you and hurt you. Not hating them, not holding grudges, not seeking revenge. And loving your enemies, this is not about being sentimental towards them. Uh, it's not about saying nice things or thinking nice thoughts towards people who are a little bit nasty to us. This sort of love, this loving your enemies that Jesus is talking about here, is gritty and it's practical and it's radical. It's a love that forgives. It's a love that goes the extra mile. It's a love that is sacrificial and it costs as well. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever tried to pray for somebody who has really, really hurt you? I think it is a completely rock-hard thing to do. It's the last thing I ever want to do is to pray for somebody who's hurt me, to be honest. Because when we're praying for somebody, what we're doing is we're inviting them into our relationship with God. And what we're doing is we're actually seeing them in the way that God sees them. We're saying, actually, you who have hurt me, you're worthy of forgiving. In fact, you're just worthy. You're worthy of being loved as well. You're in need of transformation. And so praying for the person that's persecuting you or hurting you or making your life difficult. That is a really hard thing to do, but it is so powerful and it is so transformational as well. Think about it for a moment. What difference would it make in how you feel about that person who has hurt you, who you just want to get back at, that person at school or at work or in your family who makes your life a misery? What would happen if you decided to pray for them, if you, in a sense, invited them into your relationship with God? Do you think that Jesus could actually bring healing to that relationship? Romans 12, verse 20 to 21 says this, Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. The standard of God's love is different. 
It's radical and it's powerful and it's transformational. It's not our job to sort out the justice of the world. We need to leave some of that to God. Our job is to just in little ways overcome evil with good. And this is why I always think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa following apartheid is such, was such a powerful thing, such a transformational thing. People had been so badly hurt by each other uh, during the time of apartheid in South Africa. And the focus of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was simply to bring the truth out into the open and for people to be reconciled, preventing the need for revenge, preventing the need for communities and individuals to continue to harbour hate towards each other. They moved from retaliation to love and forgiveness. It was an incredible, powerful thing. And all this is not just about being good people or being virtuous for its own sake. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a really uh, incredible guy, uh, Christian theologian who was murdered by the Nazis uh, for his outspoken views about Nazi uh, Germany, said this. What makes Christians different from other men and women is the peculiar, the perison, that's the plus, the added thing, the extraordinary, the unusual, that which is not a matter of course. And so what is this thing, this plus, this extraordinary, the thing that marks Christians out as different? It's the love of Jesus Christ who went to the cross. And the cross of Jesus is the place that makes the difference in so many parts of this world and in our lives. It's the love of Jesus Christ who went to the cross because at the cross of Jesus, a place that is all about violence and is all about revenge, love and mercy meet. The cross is a place of love and not revenge. It's a place of kindness, not retaliation. At the cross of Jesus, uh, there is forgiveness, not hate. At the cross of Jesus, there is prayer and generosity. So why should we love our enemies? Why should we pray for those who persecute us, who hurt us or make our lives difficult? Because Jesus told us to, and Jesus did it himself. Jesus was mocked. He was insulted. He was humiliated. He was struck. And he didn't retaliate or shout out. He took it and he turned the other cheek. When the Romans put their equipment on Jesus's back, their equipment of torture and death, he didn't have to carry that cross for one mile. He didn't have to carry their equipment for one mile. Jesus had to carry that equipment to his death. And when he was on the cross, Jesus prayed for those who were persecuting him. He prayed for those who were executing him. He cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what he's doing. But one of the incredible things at this moment is that it's actually written in the imperfect tense, which means that he didn't just say it once. He hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. 
Father, forgive them. It means he kept saying it, he kept praying it time and time again. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Tom Wright puts it like this. The cross couldn't silence Jesus' prayer for his enemies. So what justification is there for ours? The cross couldn't silence Jesus' prayer for his enemies. And so what justification is there for ours? On the cross, Jesus won the victory. So we don't have to. You don't have to win because Jesus has already won. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to finish by literally reading you a story. It's one that I'm sure many of you have heard before, and it's one that, when I first heard it, really powerfully affected me. And it's a story uh, from Corrie Ten Boone's book, The Hiding Place. Mrs. Corrie, uh, when she just came out of Nazi Germany. So I'll just read it as she writes it, because she writes it so brilliantly. It was 1947, she writes, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after my talks in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hats he was wearing. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, and he had his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He'd not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner amongst thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swimming, swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd come face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me, he said. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? 
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever been asked to do. For I had to do it, I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm, it sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing and warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely than I did then. What an incredible story of love and reconciliation rather than revenge. And so the standard of God is to love like God, not like people. But as Corrie ten Boom uh, demonstrated there, we can only do that through this supernatural power and grace of God at work in us, transforming us first. And so maybe tonight that's what you need. You get it in your head, but the reality of living out the love and kindness and forgiveness and generosity of God to the person who has hurt you the most just seems like an impossibility. Maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with his grace and his compassion and his love and bring, bring transformation to your life first so that you can offer transformation to somebody else. Maybe some of us just need to remember that it's not our job to bring revenge. We just need to leave the justice to God. It's our job to overcome evil with good. And maybe some of us, we're actually holding a grudge today. We're holding some hurt that we've been carrying and it's been festering. Maybe tonight is the night where you need to bring that pain, that hurt, that grudge, whatever it is, and bring it to the foot of the cross of Jesus. The place where Jesus called out time and again, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And maybe you just need to let it go and let God deal with it. Maybe today we, we all need to let the risen Christ transform us in some way.